I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this first in a series of birthday conversations at the London Review Bookshop to celebrate 40 years of the London Review of Books. I'm Sam Kitchen-Smith, the LRB's digital editor, and I'm delighted to be joined by two of the paper's most heroic contributors. <laughs> Rosemary Hill, a contributing editor, is a writer and historian who has written books about Pugin, Stonehenge, and Angela Carter, which isn't a bad summary of the kinds of subjects she's written about for the LRB for three decades. Her most recent piece, a fairly scathing review of a cultural history of fatness, is in the issue on your chairs, as is a diary by Ian Sinclair, his first piece for the paper since his 2017 winter lecture, The Last London. The last in a series of extraordinary, pioneering pieces about London and its environs that he's contributed to the paper since the early 90s, many of which have fed into acclaimed books, including Lights Out for the Territory, London Orbital, and Hackney, That Red Rose Empire, Rose Red Empire. His latest piece isn't about London, it's about Peru. Um, He's somewhat left London behind, but we've brought him back for tonight's conversation. The idea of these events is to present the LRB's contributors and editors in conversation about a subject they've returned to many times in their writing, to think about it in terms of the LRB and the last 40 years. For this first event, we only got as far as the first word of our name. <laughs> our conversation will be interspersed with readings from Rosemary and Ian of pieces from the distant and more recent past. We'll talk for about 50 minutes, after which there will be an opportunity for questions. Rosemary and Ian's books will be on sale after the event, as will our big anniversary book, London Review of Books and Incomplete History, which we hope you'll buy. Uh, before we begin, three pieces of housekeeping. The fire doors are the doors. Uh, Please watch out for wine glasses when you stand up at the end and please switch your phones onto silent. Um, So to kick off, uh, we're going to start with Ian reading a piece he wrote for the paper in 1990 called Isle of Dogs. Great. Can I I just fill in a kind of small anecdote first because before we started we were having this sort of discussion uh, I don't want to get too bogged down with the ideas of the last London or any of that, but we were just saying, is the digitalization process 
made it a different city. Yeah. And yes, yesterday, uh, I was walking down towards Whitechapel, and underneath the railway arch, which used to be sort of grubby garages and things, is now a very artisan baker. And I stopped to, to buy a loaf of bread, which kind of innocent activity. But unfortunately, their, their, their machine for swiping your card wasn't working. And we, we waited about 10 minutes, and then up came a little sign that said, Hello! And that was it. And, and so I said, well, could I give you money? And, and they, it's like a Bateman cartoon. They kind of reel back as if I'd sort of grabbed up a handful of bird shit from under the bridge. I said, no, 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 you can't give us money. So uh, just take the bread and come back tomorrow. Which is why I was a bit late today, because I, I run to get back to Whitechapel. The machine was now working. But the doors of the building had been smashed and Rosemary and I were talking about this, this moment of the digital and the real and the argument between the two. She was talking about driving in a car and a person in front was completely on the digital thing. She honked the horn and this man exploded in anger. And this anger between the digital and the real was expressed so perfectly in this moment when the, the shop that I'd visited yesterday was smashed to pieces because some angry person wanting his artisan loaf had head-butted the window in his fury at not being able to pay and the f- refusal of the shop to accept money. Money is kind of vanished. It's a dirty subject. And I thought one of the little ironies was a nice little block of flats opposite on Valence Road is where the Cray twins lived with their old mum. I think they probably could have sorted this out. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that kind of does put us into the... Yeah, absolutely, because we're going back piece. to a different sort of anger. Yes, I mean, it was quite... You, you know, I didn't, I didn't actually self-select this piece, but it, I, rem- I remember it very well, um, because it was, I think, the, the, the first time I'd ever sort of had a big piece in the LRB, and it was a, a picture of a snarling pit bull on the cover, which I was very pleased with. And I was saying, this is how London writing worked. In, in that, I, I, the first, very first thing I was asked to review was a biography of John Healy, who I got to know and became friendly with, who wrote a wonderful book, The Grass Arena. But then I was sort of pigeonholed as writing about the underlife of London, and, and I, this Pitbull book arrived to be reviewed, which was an American sort of crime story about Pitbull fighting. And then I realized that. This was happening on my own doorstep. It was that moment, that sort of late Thatcher period when pit bulls and satellite dishes were twinned. And I I wrote this piece, sort of pretending to review the book I really wrote about my own doorstep, which is the way we've gone on ever since. Okay. My, My wife teaches in a borderland school. The place is invisible to those who cannot wait to escape from Hackney, who rush to their doom in a perpetual honking stream over the lee and away into the comparative safety of Leighton, Whips Cross and Epping Forest, the mulch zones in which inner-city crimes are finally buried. They do things differently there. These are places people have chosen to escape towards. The school could be anywhere, but it happens to be in this lost settlement, hiding in the shadow of a hackney hospital with its demented towers and abandoned wings. This is where you finish when the mind snaps beyond hope of healing. All the unresolved problems have rolled down the hill and stuck because they can go no further. The schoolyard is surrounded by a storm fence to keep out the less determined and more visible spectres of rage. 
In the mornings, as the children straggle in with parents, sisters, grandparents, keepers, or even alone, the fence begins unemphatically to resemble the OK Corral. Pit bulls, denied access to the yard itself, are tied to hitching poles. They stand stock still, gleaming bronze in the pale sun, flanks heaving, staring with eyes of inner anguish at these potential feeding grounds. <laughs> the dogs confer status even at the bottom of the heap, and this is where the status is most needed. There's not much else. The pit bull is twinned in desirability with the possession of a satellite disc, if not the rancid channel itself. These hideous shields, each one resembling a a dog's head, creep like malign barnacles over the barracks of guttered experiments in public housing. Nobody has yet marketed a mock Georgian satellite disc, (laughs) decently rusticated with a pseudo coat of arms. The dog and the disc, they hang out together like a pub sign. The one announces the presence of the other. The dog protects the disc and also basks in its addictive glow. The disc, if activated, feeds liquid sun, that's in italics for the newspaper, sick light, dopamine substitutes induce a paranoid trance state in which the only possible reaction to such selective inertia is a howl of suppressed rage, fire images of violation and urban destruction, apocalyptic seizures. We begin to see dogs everywhere, and these dogs have been called into being to see with our own eyes and the hubristic expense of keeping such toys is crippling. Midnight flits are norm. Puzzled children move school repeatedly as dog and television are loaded onto the symbolic handcart, here masquerading as a respectable motor paid off to the height of the hubcaps. Everybody has their favourite pit bull story, stories that pull the community together like doodlebug yarns in wartime. The Cypriot tailor in Dalston Lane, who still operates in the jaunty ambience that sent the craze sailing to their fate in schmutter that made them look like Romanian secret policemen dressed for a wedding, recalls the incident in a decommissioned shop guarded by a pit bull. Credit where credit's due, he gave her fair warning. The police wandered across the road in response to unexplained noises. The dog had been left in there for a week or ten days, unfed and unwatered, and nobody seemed to know if the absentee landlord had done a runner or if he'd been pulled for having the wrong papers in the right place. But when the policewoman effected an entrance, brave, direct, trained, bags of confidence, look the beast in the eye, hold out the hand, palm upwards for the lick of surrender, the dog sprang straight up and took her face off. They padlocked the door and came back later when things were quiet with a gun. Pit bulls will growl a warning, that's the myth. But Rottweilers, the guard dogs schooled in harsher places, go for the drool mode to full frontal assault with no perceptible change of gear. These stories have been around for a few years now. Crazed devil dog thrown off balcony. That's one that caught my eye in the Hackney Gazette. That estate agent's pamphlet culled weekly from the Book of Revelations. And Krumer Warren invited a couple of mates around to his second-floor flat for a cup of tea and chat. A pit bull, a rare white costing £2,000, didn't altogether take to them. In fact, he tore the trousers off one and tried to perform an unorthodox tonsillectomy on the other. This was taking acceptable liveliness too far. Mr Warren locked the animal in the kitchen. The dog wasn't finished yet and hit the door so hard with its head it reduced it to firewood. This was serious. The damage to council property can have quite unforeseen consequences. There was nothing else to do. Mr Warren wrestled his treasure to the balcony and threw it over. The animal broke its back in the fall and died. 
but the family did not give way to morbid thoughts. I've got another, Mr. Warren remarked, and he is absolutely fine with the baby. <laughs> Dark days. <laughs> um, so what interested me when we were talking about that piece is that you sort of suggested that the, the way that the piece was commissioned, being given this book, kind of opened up a different way of writing about London. And I just wondered if you could talk a yes, bit about Yes, it was London. sort of unexpected and, and accidental. Um, because before this, and you can tell from the tone of this, I, I mainly wrote fiction, a kind of fiction on the edge of documentation. And after this, and, and being invited to write this piece for the LRB, which gave you enough sort of breathing space to, to take it on, I thought there's a kind of another way of writing about London, that, that, that the sort of episodes and incidents that I noticed around me, if I watched them closely enough and kept photographic records and did some research, would, would possibly lead themselves into a, into a new kind of book, mm. which became Lights Out for the Territory, which was drawn on several... The spine of it really was pieces commissioned by the LRB. Do you recognise that, Rosemary, of a, a particular commission that when you started looking at the subject in the way that the book sort of encouraged, it made you think differently about how you might write about the city that you were born in? Um, yes, I mean, I think one of the differences between us is that London has been a subject for Ian, whereas for me, I mean, I was born here, I was born in Guy's Hospital, so I am technically a Cockney, a fact which is very useful sometimes in arguments with taxi drivers. Um, but, um, but for me, I was quite surprised when Sam said, oh, come with Ian, because, you know, London is such a big theme in both your work, because I don't think I thought it was a theme, I think it's just... It's just always there. It's always in the background. Um, and as a historian, I sort of walk, I walk through the streets as they are and the streets as they were. And I must say, I don't, I don't think the pit bull thing was ever quite as bad down in Camberwell. <laughs> because in Camberwell, it seems, or in Eltham, um, to have gone not so much with satellite dishes as with aquariums. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. Well, Camberwell's a bit, it's a bit posher down there, isn't it? It's like well, not in Eltham, it isn't. Um, <laughs> I can I mean, assure kind of, you. As, you. as you made your money in Cram, you kind of begin to drift outwards and, and to, until you end on in the other side of the motorway in M25, where... The real trouble happens as you as you move out to just beyond the yeah. M25. Though so, I mean, Eltham is well within. Oh yeah, oh uh, um, Eltham, absolutely yes. But oh, as um, we know, yeah. But as I say, there you get if you go to the like me to the aquatics shop because you've just got a new garden pond and you'd like some flowers, go in it. Um, and they were incredibly nice to me and my husband when we went there. But everybody else had a shaved head and a pit bull and a lot of tattoos. So we realised we'd we'd crossed into a certain kind of cultural nexus that I hadn't anticipated. But have you read about a subject that sort of turned the place around you into, well, I mean, for you, it's mm. an apocalyptic hellscape. It well, seems... I mean, it's kind of exaggerated, <laughs> obviously, yeah. but it, 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 it was a, a kind of a shadow play based on the kind of attitudes further up the food chain mm. in the Thatcherite period. Mm-hmm. So this, these, the, I was exploiting a kind of end game that was happening because of what was happening politically up above. The, mm. the, the funds were being withdrawn. I mean, the school that, that I mentioned at the beginning where my wife taught, you know, when, when we pulled out of the Greater London Council and all that, and then the funding wasn't there, and she was having to find her own funds to buy books for the school. The school was collapsing, and, and, and um, everything else, the hospital was actually, the hospital I mentioned was closed down, and it became part of a homerton. And, and, so it, so it was a kind of chaos. It was a, it was a moment of of quite bleak apocalyptic aspects there, which I was 
turning into a sort of graphic mm. novel or comic ad with these low, you know, I, I kind of still think that was true in a way. Mm. And when you write about historical subjects, do they suddenly imprint themselves on? I think. Well, yes. I mean, I think I'm. I take a more sunny view <laughs> than Ian, um, and that's I suppose because I mean, for both of us, there's all these layers yes, um, as sure. you walk through the streets of London. But for me, they tend to be um, history. I know whose house I'm walking past. Um, I know um, what went on in certain streets. And without wanting to sound fey, there are times when, you know, that seems just Mm. as real as anything else. And as you were saying, I mean, that was an apocalyptic nightmare time. This is an apocalyptic nightmare time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And as a lot of my work goes through um, the... the, um, incredibly repressive measures that were taken in this country at the end of the 18th century all the way through the Napoleonic Wars and so on. I'm very aware of other ghosts having difficult and indeed good times Mm. and these layers going down and down. But also, I mean, I I kind of in the same way, I think of Hagney, that Samuel Pepys as a child was sent out there as an Mm. idyllic place to to recover because it was too, too dangerous to be around Fleet Street. So, so the kind of shifts that have happened in this same landscape over that period, it's just astonishing. Yes, I mean, there are the shifts. And then there are also, as I've been saying to various people who are here today uh, at the weekend, the thing about Camberwell, where I live, is that it has been a byword for lower middle class pretension ever since the late 18th, early 19th century. Um, and um, in the great attack um, on the Cockney poets... Um, Lee Hunt mm. and Keats in particular. Um, the, the, I, what's the name of the man who wrote it? The Attack. Yes. Uh, anyway, well, the essay on uh, attacking Cockney poets. And he says that the pretension is like a grocer who has a shooting box on the Camberwell Road. <laughs> and it goes on all the way through Dickens. It goes on all the way yeah. down to the music hall and any old iron, any old iron. It's the uncle down in Camberwell who thinks he has a gold watch. But, of course, it's any old iron. Um, and so that has always rather amused and entertained me. And sometimes people say, oh, well, of course, you know, Camberwell's now coming up. <laughs> it isn't, really. Um, historically, it's always got to a certain point. Um, and then, as every chapter in Blanche's history of Camberwell begins, during this period, Camberwell's fortunes decline. <laughs> um, but it is, in terms of the ground there, um, Dios, who wrote the, the the book of Victorian Suburb, which is about camp- taking Camberwell as an example of how you create a suburb, um, says in a way it was um, the first garden city because it's a part of the city built in other people's gardens, which is absolutely true. It's the big fit. I mean, the King's College Hospital stands on you the site. You start to go two- uphill, which is always nice. Yes, um, and King's College Hospital stands on the site of two villas with their gardens um, because after the war, First World War began to move south. So those are the kind of layers um, that I see. When you write about these sorts of things for a paper that, as I said, has London in the title, but also a subscriber base that could be described as quite London-centric and uh, a contributor base that could be described as quite London-centric, do you feel like you're speaking to an audience that has a kind of level of knowledge that means that you can do... um, you can assume certain things and you can assume certain kind of shared knowledges and yes. reference points. Oddly enough, my first, not my first, but my second job on a magazine was on Country Life, which is very different. 
But, um, and there you were always told that you were writing for the country parson. Mm. And what that meant was you were writing for somebody who had time to read you, who was generally very well educated and thoughtful, but didn't have any specialist knowledge that you could assume on a particular subject. And frankly, I still think, although country parsons have gone the way of all flesh, um, it's quite well, a good... A country parson. Oh, well, good. <laughs> well, tell him I'm writing for him. Yeah. It's all for him. Does he read the LRB? Uh, no. no. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll have to work on that. But I know, I think that's... And, of course, the wonderful thing about writing for the paper here is that you have a very... I'm not just saying this, wonderful editors. And they very quickly let you know when you've gone up some kind of wormhole of your own particular fancy um, and just say, you know, what does this bit mean, then? (laughs) Which is very salutary. Do you feel a sense of lineage and community and... Not really, no. I think they kind of let me in through the cat flap. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I, I kind of always admired it, and, and slightly from an angle, mm. and, and I feel I don't really belong here, you know. But, I, but they're very generous, and they, they let you have this space. And ed- I think the editing is, is beautiful, you know, uh, because I've met kind of brutal editing elsewhere. <laughs> First thing is just strike out your first paragraph. So get on with it, you know. Whereas I've sort of hidden tactfully things in the beginning that I want to bring back at the end, and you've got you've got the room to do it. I, I love that. I think that's really wonderful. Well, uh, it, it they, is that idea of the essay. Yes, and the yes. editors get that. They're they not do. Constantly they do. Saying, what's this? What's that? In your first two sentences. There are kind of eccentricities of how style. Yes, you've shown kind of happy to put up with. You know, you have these enormously long paragraphs. Forget doing short paragraphs and forget doing all <laughs> kinds of things that I would do but then I can take it back later and wrestle yeah. it into another form <laughs> and all in all it's been a, been a wonderful thing um, Shall we move on to a piece that you wrote in 1992 which I guess is quite a good example of the sort of thing that you were saying in that London is a character rather than the character um, This was a review of a book by Althea Hayter called A Sultry Month which was published first in the 60s then it was republished and Mary Kay said to me that I should review it because it was one of her favourite books. And she was glad it was being um, republished. It's a bit loaded. <laughs> <You couldn't>... Well, <laughs> um, yes, I suppose so. But given that Althea was by this stage nearly 90, um, <laughs> there was no way that you would bother to review it unless you thought that it was worth reviewing. And it was a very early example of microhistory, if you like. Um, the sultry month was one hot summer when... Benjamin Hayden, at the end of the period of that month, Benjamin Hayden killed himself. But it's really, um, what I loved about it was that it's done day by day, sometimes hour by hour, street by street, you know exactly where everyone is. Um, And it is the best kind of microhistory, which is like you look through a little keyhole and you see a whole landscape. So, um, no one ever failed more completely to be the hero of his own life than the painter Benjamin Robert Hayden for whom heroism was an obsession. He used his own head as a model for Christ, Solomon, Alexander and Marcus Curtius. And he believed that heroic history painting was the highest form of art. Today, his only generally remembered work is a portrait of Wordsworth. In his lifetime, Hayden was well known and not without admirers, but he was dogged increasingly by ridicule and failure. In 1846, after his designs for frescoes for the Houses of Parliament had been rejected, he exhibited two of his massive historical paintings in the Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly. The public flocked to the building, but to see the midget, General Tom Thumb, who was being shown downstairs. On the first day, Hayden attracted only four visitors. 
I would not have believed it of the English people, he wrote in his journal, with that absence of insight or humour that makes him such a sad and at the same time such a tiresome figure. That summer, there was a tremendous heat wave, the sultry month of Althea Hayter's title. Hayden worked with increasing desperation on his painting, Alfred and the First British Jury. It was a hopeless endeavour. No one would buy it. Hardly anyone would admire it. The painting would merely mark another stage in his his descent into neglect and debt. On the 22nd of June, in front of his vast unfinished canvas in the sweltering studio, he shot himself and then cut his throat. At the inquest, the coroner's summing up dwelt chiefly on Sir Robert Peel's generosity to the artist's family. So Hayden was not even the hero of his own death. Mm. A sultry month deals with the weeks leading up to Hayden's suicide and with its immediate aftermath taking the story day by day and sometimes hour by hour. Not only the events, but every sentence of dialogue, the food, the flowers, the furniture, are all taken from contemporary accounts. Hayter handles Hayden himself with a tact and subtlety that keeps him in three dimensions, a character who threatens to constantly flatten himself into a cartoon. We come to understand why Keats was fond of him, and Elizabeth Barrett admired him as well as the reasons that his son despised him and his painting failed. Even so, Hayden is not the hero or even quite the centre of the book. A sultry month is a demonstration of how martyrdom takes place in a corner. We see exactly who is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. The Carlyles on their constipating diet of mutton and potatoes. Elizabeth Barrett trying to get a breath of air in Wimpole Street. Browning walking home to New Cross. Events and people are restored as nearly as possible to the relative significance they assumed at the time. And with the distorting lens of hindsight all but removed, there are some startling results. Only from this particular angle, for example, could the graph in Han Han rise again from the footnotes of literary history to loom as large as she did that summer. The ageing one-eyed author of a schlockbuster, Countess Faustina, had come to England with an ugly paramour in tow to meet her admirers. She was as insensitive as Hayden to other people's view of her and as unrealistic about her abilities. Though better natured, she was much less talented. Her progress a macabre counterpoint to his decline. The day before Hayden's death, she was invited to one of Samuel Rogers' breakfasts, the start the week of the 1840s, and did rather well. Elizabeth Barrett admired her book, and Carlyle liked the author. On the morning of Hayden's death, Browning, who had been invited to meet the Grafin so often he felt obliged to plough through Faustina, wrote to tell Elizabeth Barrett that he didn't think much of it. The accumulation of minute particulars adds to the realism of Althea Hayter's account and to its truthfulness. The fact that Jane Carlyle's savaging of Sordello was the culmination of a dislike of Browning that began when he ruined her new carpet by putting a hot kettle down on it. (laughs) Perhaps no more than anecdotal value. But to know that Hayden's short sight and his relatively cramped studio meant that he could never stand far enough back from his work to get a correct sense of proportion not only adds to an understanding of the picture's failings, it becomes emblematic of his life and character. A Sultry Month was first published in 1965, since when it's been followed by other essays in group biography, most notably Linda Kelly's, those of you who know Juniper Hall, which have made this a kind of sub-genre, and it's one of which I am very fond, but I think people often think it's much easier than it actually is. 
Well, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, you are something of an expert <coughs> in writing a kind of LRB review of a microhistory. And I wonder whether you find that version of extremely detailed reproduction of a small thing to be a convincing way of confronting, say, the London of previous generations? I think anything can be good and anything can be bad. It all depends who's doing it. Mm. Um, And I have reviewed less successful attempts to do the microhistory because I say from from the reader's point of view, it's marvellous because you are getting something that presents itself as quite small. It's not gibbon. You know, you feel you can get to grips with it. Um, but if it's well done, say, the, the flowers, the food, the furniture, everything will be accurate. And it's the, the art of the miniaturist. And I therefore think it's difficult to do because you do have to get every single thing right. Whereas if you're doing a grand gallop, um, you can use a broader brush. But no, I don't care really, as long as it's good. Mm. I don't really mind how it's done. It seems to be that your project in is maybe different or maybe the same. I, I can't quite tell, but it, it's it's more based upon trying to reproduce several layers simultaneously mm-hmm. and to zoom in and out and to form a sort of montage out of which a different sort of clarity emerges. Is that a fair characterization? I don't know. <laughs> um, what I what I feel it is in in real terms, is, is coming to this place, you know, I, unlike Rosemary, I'm not, I'm not a Londoner, you know, I, 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 I always sort of, London was on the horizon, I grew up in South Wales, and I, I came to Hackney to a communal house with some people I'd been in Dublin with in 1968, uh, or 67, just to, for a fortnight or a weekend, and, and never had the imagination to get away. So, so then, I mean, what I realised was this: this amazing place was this sort of organic entity. It was a, was a really living being, and I wanted to stalk around it and and share Rosemary's sense that of this. You mentioned this this sort of layering that that these other histories are still with us mm-hmm. very much. You know, at every step you take, more than anywhere else I've ever been, they speak to you. And 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 the the job is simply to kind of tune in to somehow to this sort of palimpsest of things and and carry, not so much invent something original and new, but to complete strands that are already in play. And have you had to tune out now that you're thinking... Well, otherwise I'd be completely mad. (laughs) I'd just be one of the people... I mean, we all seem to be mad because everybody is now sort of marching up and down the street talking to themselves, (laughs) but I would be talking to myself and trying to... I'd be a kind of radio set. I don't mean that, you know, but I mean that you you go around in a, in a sort of limbo, a dream, and then suddenly this bit, that house, you know, I mean, just walking a few yards with Rosemary earlier today and we see the plaque for Orwell and Spender on the Horizon building and get the story of the blue plaques. And so I've, I've kind of passed this house, but now there's a whole another layer of how the meetings take place and how the blue plaques are mm. decided and all that. So, so you know, you add constantly just by the... I say every walk becomes the person you're walking with, and every move is is adding to this uh, information that accumulates over many years. The idea of a hot summer is quite. Um, I mean, it just immediately makes me think of that that strange day, which it was sort of forty two degrees Celsius or something um, earlier this summer, uh, and immediately the idea of a hot summer you you can transport yourself between the different 
moments of this. I mean, you wrote about another one that resulted in something called the Great Stink um, seven years later. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, in the course of these uh, examples of microhistory, you've found something that particularly speaks to the present London with its... Well, except that the present London is is all these other Londons. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is, there's not a kind of thin moment now that's different to these other moments. I mean, I don't know if Rosemary agrees with that, but I think all these other ones are... I think it's, I mean, it is one of the... It's very important not to get sort of complacent about this, but certainly the great stink um, when finally... Um, the hero of that story, of course, is, is Basiljet, who um, built... And another, that really annoys me. When you see those signs saying, replacing London's Victorian mm-hmm. sewers, as if the problem was that they were Victorian. If the Victorians hadn't built them so well, we would be, and we, they would never have survived <laughs> the years and years of neglect. So I always feel very cross uh, when I see that. And all the you know, Victorian prisons, which are now being made to hold two, three, sometimes more times the number of people they were built for, um, that the, the impression you get is that the Victorians were um, stupid or cruel, um, which some of them were, but some of us are. Um, but I think, no, the great stink was um, the Palace of Westminster was being built. Um, Disraeli was busily setting up Queen Victoria to be um, the Empress of India. And the, 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 the um, Thames was just running with raw sewage and there is a wonderful moment when um, they're having a cabinet meeting and um, suddenly first Disraeli and then the others they just clamp their handkerchiefs over their mouths and all rush out and throw up so finally the people of London who've been campaigning for quite some considerable time to have something done about this are very pleased but it does um, the behaviour of politicians which has been appalling recently has been appalling in many other occasions Basildjet also leaves you this beautiful building, the um, pumping station near yes. Channel Sea on the yes. northern sewage outfall, which has become absorbed into the Olympic Park and is a, is a beautiful shot in Patrick Keeler's film London. And what I always love about this is that this is Basildjet's kind of yes. memorial in a way. Well, there are several of them, and they are now, like Abbey Mills as well, they are yes. these great Victorian uh, monuments and temples. And people do like them, but there's somehow... I think, still an inhibition about admiring Victorian London. And, of course, having written The Life of Pugin, who was the art architect of the Palace of Westminster, which is now going through yet another crisis um, about the restoration when it was being built in the 1840s, the Hungry Forties. How can we be spending all this money um, when people are starving in Ireland, and of course, all that happened was no Irish life was saved, but the palace was built in a rather slapdash way, which is why it's now expensive to maintain. <laughs> right behind uh, Abbey Mills is um, the place where Big Brother TV was filmed. There was the Ooh. island stockade, which was the contemporary culture of that <laughs> moment, with a Basil Jet relation in charge of the kind of TV. Peter. TV. Well, well, I won't say TV series. That but, leads you know, yes. very so, nicely on. Yeah. To oh, sorry. <laughs> so, please, sorry. Sir. Okay. Yes. No. Um, to so I asked um, Ian for a, a sort of moment like that um, in terms of a moment that he had written about as being a sort of pivot that perhaps reached its res- resolution mm. with with the last London, um, and I was interested that you you specifically identified. The dome, yeah. and you're writing about the dome, and 
1997, now kind of widely regarded as a point of optimism compared to the present moment, but that you you detected a sort of rot that began there. Absolutely. And you wrote about it in 1997. So do you want to read that piece and then we can talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you're asking the kind of moment I, I felt this new London we were describing where the virtual overwhelmed the actual. And I thought it was that moment of this huge fuss about creating this tent that had no content. And also, like, like Hayden, I, 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 this is the only time I've... I've, I've done a book launch reading profile books did a little book about the two pieces I'd done for the LRB and nobody came nobody it was just like a completely empty room I'm standing with the dome I thought this is not looking good for the dome <laughs> and anyway um, I did identify it as a kind of death of the new labour project and everything else which I kind of enjoyed doing um, and so this was, this was, I don't know which bit, there were two bits I think I did, and this, this was one of them. It now seems, I think this is the first sort of tour around the site when it was a building site. It now seems obvious the millennium can't be pre-programmed. Whatever happens to, has to be spontaneous. Time was never going to behave as if it were the nominated victim of a final privatisation with Peter Mandelson as in one of his self-awarded titles, the single shareholder. Time can't provide fat cat salaries for its managers. The well-protected cabins of the English partnerships have been sited alongside a granite monolith, a memorial to the gas workers who died in the Great War. The borough of Greenwich, the old town, is already prostituting time with an efficient walk-through museum and a heritage complex. Foreigners can learn how to queue properly before being confronted by a rack of copies of Davos Sobel's Longitude. You can pay a quid to have a machine tell you what time it is and where you are, thus removing yet another of the hereditary duties of the British Bobby. You can watch the ghostly millennial peninsula glide across a circular table in a darkened camera obscura chamber, the ancestor of virtual reality. You can put your eye to a telescope fixed along the line of zero longitude and see giant satellite dishes, I seem to be obsessed by them, on the North Shore. See how the line fails to pass directly through the skeleton of the millennial tent. In a space dedicated to the celebration of time, the Teflon Dome is not going to enjoy much of it. They're around 25 years is a common estimate, which I hadn't grasped until then, was this figure, was the dome could be no more than a serious budget version of the Rachel Whiteread house, a mute memorial, as the artist said, to the pathos of remembering. It's a structure, it's an installation that's made to disappear, a tolerated obstruction. There's no need for anything to be inside it. Like the Whiteread Terrace in Grove Road, it has no inside. It's a visible skin. It's a call stitched from cloud and water. It's the ultimate Thatcherite artifact existing only as a proposal. To realise it is absurd. It's an unnecessary vulgarity. This is pure performance. Visitors should be there now, watching the building work, watching the helter-skelter construction, admiring the colour field vistas, the purity of the yellow supports, the green of the nuttle signboards, the white funnel of the ventilation shaft. Because the rest of it, the newspaper grazers, the rest of us, the millennium is already all used up. It happened when it was least expected, on a drowsy Sunday morning. The theatre of the century simply occurred. Nobody planned it. 
a life that had been lived in photographs ended in photographs. The heavy gloss of a bulletproof Mercedes was reduced to vegetable pulp. The harshly lit metallic tangle looked like stitched leather, like a cruel Oldenburg, like those necrophile prints that so exercised Andy Warhol, disasters of the peace. A season that had seen the deaths of the beat generation visionaries Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, the folding in through reminiscence of troubled minds, now delivered an icon that provoked a week of subdued hysteria. The extinction of a century that seemed increasingly self-conscious, feeding on its own entrails, penning obituaries as christening presents, over-rehearsing public funerals, the crash in the underpass after Ballard and Cronenberg, after the exposures of James Dean and Jane Mansfield and Princess Grace is the archetypal late-century event, a cocktail of déjà vu and prophecy, not so much an intimation of mortality for television subscribers, but a reality fax, the shrill bleep of mobile phone sending tremors through a carapace of indifference. So the people, or large sections of it, took to the streets, reclaiming chunks of Whitehall, the secret state holdings, the privileged real estate, a cellophane moat around inert public buildings. Dying floral tributes were heaped against the railings of Buckingham Palace in a gesture of soft rebellion. That's how it happens. The millennium is pursued in the wave patterns of mass hallucination, an illusion of freedom, suspended time, stomach sickness, a world in slowed motion where everything happens very fast. Flashbacks, repetitions, and now it's been done, written out, experienced. We can get on with the business of survival. We can forget the millennial trumpeting. We can tear down the fences. We can open up the river frontage. We can return the poisoned land to use. No more circuses, no tent shows, but a kind of workaday fields that once existed outside the walls of the city, somewhere to practice archery, to operate market gardens, and to listen as entertainment to the threnodies of hucksters, hedge priests, and visionary madmen. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, so. The, the reason that's significant is because of the, the that's the point at which the virtual... Um, yeah, well, not so much in that particular extract, but, but, the, but the sense of this huge spin around something that mm. was sort of unreal and, and the promises made and the failure to deliver... And the, the sense that the, the sort of be- a lot of the beauty of the riverfront in its decay and its history was going to be overwritten by a sort of um, pasted on version, a Xerox. And um, while all this is going on, it's really about a major development of moving housing across from the Isle of Dogs onto mm-hmm. the Greenwich Peninsula. And in fact, you know, overriding the story of what was the Greenwich Peninsula was where all the vats were boiling whaleburn to make the light that created the soft but smelly light of, of London that was so beautiful and created fortunes for people like Elhanan Bicknell, who was the whalebone, whale oil magnate who um, patronized Turner and was a friend of Ruskin. So all of, these, all of these stories, which, you know, Rosemary would recognize very well, are there, but they were covered over by a sort of elastoplasted version, which was tacky and which had to sell itself out to something else when, when the moment passed. I think, I mean, an interesting thing about how people perceive Victorian London, I suppose, is, is, is kitsch. And they see certain aspects of kind of Victorian architecture as being, uh, you know, 
kitschy pastiche. I don't, well, I don't know, but just before we get on to that, I think the, the great glory, of course, of the terrible tent was the ventilation <laughs> shaft, um, which um, one of the civil servants who was working on it said, apparently, to Mangelson, you're going to have to tell the press about the ventilation shaft. It's from the Royal High Tunnel. It's mm. enormous. Mm. Um, and um, it was on the site. And she said, you know, they, they're going to notice it. <laughs> you better make out that this was always part it of the It looks very sinister, as if, you know, you're going in this tent and, and there's you this may huge never get out. T- anyway, so it, was, it and its twin were listed, much to the delight of Terry Farrell, who was the architect. Um, I'm not sure... They would have been listed had they not been such a kind. Of, but they, they were the real thing. Yes, no, no. That, um, that was what the, that one was. That was, was the, the moment real thing in the pinpoint tent. of reality in the whole business. Yeah, absolutely. As for Victorian architecture being pastiche and kitsch, I mean, people sometimes do say um, about um, Gothic architecture, well, it's, you know, it's, it's just, somebody said about the Palace of Westminster, well, it's just a big fake. And all you can say is, well, a big fake what? Mm. What have you ever seen? <laughs> that was like that before. Nothing, I think. Um, and I think it's interesting that we still have a discomfort about Victorians. And again, it's part of a discomfort about the past, which I think, and I'd be interested to know what Ian thinks, is sort of getting worse at the moment. That we are, um, you know, we've discovered that, that slavery was, was a thing. And so anyone who was involved with slavery, which was practically everybody directly mm. or indirectly at a certain point, um, is, there's a danger of a kind of Stalinist overwriting of history. Um, and I think that the right to be um, offended, the right to... I mean, everyone laughs at the Victorians for bowdlerizing Shakespeare, but of course we're... I think one of the reasons people feel so twitchy about the Victorians is that we're now doing this ourselves. We're taking stuff out. We're saying, can't put that on. You know, it's, it would offend somebody. So um, I feel very inclined to stick up for the Victorians, um, who were no better and no worse than anyone else, but we owe them a lot. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We should remember that. Well, we, you mentioned the Peru business at the beginning of this, and this this is absolutely the, my entry into that was a Victorian story of my my great grandfather in 1891, who'd grown up in kind of very humble circumstances in Aberdeenshire, was sent off um, to unexplored territory in Peru to to see if this territory was suitable for growing coffee because he'd been a, a planter. 
um, and, a, and an expert, you know, in, in um, recovering soil. And they sent him off. And he, he wrote this book, which I'd read as a child, which is a sort of adventure story. But when I got to the, to the place where he was doing this on behalf of the Peruvian Corporation of London, who were based in uh, Leadenhall Street, and who had been given sort of huge trenches, bigger than Britain and Spain and all put together, in Peru, because the Peruvians had reneged on their bonds to the London money market after the war with Chile. So suddenly I'm, I'm actually in that territory and I'm able to talk to the indigenous people who are living there and who regarded the result of this expedition as inducting them into slavery for years. They, they basically had to work on the coffee plantations that came along as a recommendation of what my grand- grandfather had said, how wonderful this land was and mm. it wasn't being used. And the results of that were kind of really catastrophic. It wasn't as bad as the rubber, but it was it was bad and and you know that aspect of the victorian this the sort of sense of courage and adventure and pushing out and the consequences are something that i'm trying to mm. get my head around even now and i have to take it back to look at the way that he had been pushed off his own land you know being a jacobite family and their land had gone and they they were living in very similar conditions to the people i was visiting and you know you go full circle and the exploited becomes the exploiter. And I think people will be querying us as we sit here mm, knowing mm. that our phones yeah. are put together yeah. in Vietnam by indentured labourers. I mean, I, don't, I think once you start to try and blame, that's, it's, to me, it's the wrong, which is not what you're doing, but I mean, it's, there is a lot of blaming going mm, on. Mm. Um, and really, the, the most important thing to do as an historian, I think, is to... I always feel that I appear for the defence in the case. That is, I will put the most benign, reasonable construction on the facts. Um, and you have to enter into, as far as you ever can, you never can do it completely, um, into the time, into the place. Um, and also sometimes, this is not proper academic practice, but you do occasionally have to say to yourself, OK, if it had been you, what would you have done? What would you have said? Who would you have called? This, this talk of great Victorians makes me think of another um, great moment of recent pageantry you wrote about, which is the Olympics. And the Olympics opening ceremony with Kenneth Branagh <coughs> playing Brunel. And yeah. um, I sort of feel like maybe that moment has become historicised as, as the last sort of Edwardian summer before Brexit kicked in. <laughs> was, was that moment for you an equal kind of... <coughs> Example of problematic illusory. It, it was. It was deeply, deeply. The whole thing was really problematic for me. Um, you know, through through a long engagement with the particular landscape, this happened to, and the experience of how a lot of the people I knew living in this landscape were turned off in fairly brutal ways. Um, Manor garden allotments, where they the people who were there had recovered this land in a very hard way polluted land and taken a long time to bring it up and, and you know and were pitching to be allowed to remain as a kind of uh, example of a community on the edge of this but that wasn't possible because of the levels of security that were coming in with the helicopters and the Gurkhas and all that and the people who were trying to take records all being mm. arrested so there was a kind of huge imperative towards this which was coming from somewhere else that I, I thought was fairly sinister when mm. you got into it and I kind of, after that, kept 
right away from the whole area for a long time, but I've started to creep back. I can't help myself <laughs> because it's interesting to see what happened next, as mm. it were. And some of it has been very damaging, and I guess some of it is, is better. The, the most ironic thing for me was that one part of this was that I indulged in a swan pedalo voyage at the time of the Olympics from Hastings to Hackney um, as a sort of epic marathon uh, to arrive at the Olympic site on a swan pedalo. I was pedaling with, with Andrew Cotting, the filmmaker who's making a film. And he, he takes the swan right up to the barrier that had gone across and there's helicopters and police get that swan, you know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so that was very funny. And, and now when I crept back, I, I arrived in front of the Westfield Supermall, which was the heart of the whole episode. And there's a stretch of the, the river, which is now entirely filled with swan peddling. <laughs> so I thought any critique, you know, however absurd, is going to be absorbed and turned by the system very quickly, except you can only pedal about 500 yards. I'm interested in both of your um, sort of personal Londons and... I asked Rosemary if she'd ever written about Camberwell, um, and you said, not really. But it, mm. you did write a piece in 2019 called A Keen Demand for Camberwell. <laughs> yes, well, you, you put that headline on yeah. it. Um, <laughs> I think no, it was it's a one quotation. of the things the LRB, isn't it? You never get to write your own You never not. do. No. No, Although often you do, right. but no, it's taken from the piece. <laughs> so you have written the sentence. It just happens yeah. to not be the sentence you would have chosen for your own piece. No, I've had, there were one, one or two <laughs> times I have opened the paper and thought, mm. Oh. Where did that come from? <laughs> um, but, um, no, this was an example of one of the things I love about writing for the LRB, which is that I was sent a book about the um, origins of the property market. I mean, I really couldn't think why I'd been sent it um, or what it could possibly be about. And I imagined it would be about house prices, which indirectly it was. But what it really was about was the establishment of the idea of a market for property, which was something that we sort of assume, and there's the other thing about writing history, we always assume that certain things have always been the case. Um, and I began the piece, which I will just phrase the very beginning, by remembering um, acquaintances of mine who, a photographer and artist, who faked a lot of Victorian photographs by someone they called Francis Hetling. And they unfortunately overreached themselves and had an exhibition of his work at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, and a woman who was going around recognised one of her own children. <laughs> um, so they got done. But when, because the artist in charge was, lived down in um, Cornwall and the Cornish police came up to London to question all his known associates, including a friend of mine who's an antique dealer, who answered his questions as well as he thought sensible. <laughs> and then as the policeman was going out of the shop, he turned, like they do in the police films, you know, one last question, sir, if you wouldn't mind. And yes, and he said, people keep talking about the London art market. Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, actually, though, that's a very naive question. It's not stupid. And the property market similarly became a thing only after a lot of um, other things that happened. So it begins in around the time of the um, French Revolution. As the largest, richest and most stable city in Europe, London was a magnet for paintings, jewellery, furniture and antiquities sold off by refugees, looted by armies or salvaged by dealers. In such a steeply rising market, the concept of immovable property was stretched to the limit as shiploads of stained glass, medieval tracery, wood carvings that had once comprised entire church interiors arrived. 
The star collection was that of the former Duke d'Orléans, Philippe Galaté, who attempted to sell his paintings in 1792 to sell off his debts and finance his political career, which ended in 1793 at the guillotine. His collection included works by Poussin and Claude, as well as Titian's Diana and Callisto and Venus Rising from the Sea, which are now in the National Gallery of Scotland, and it caused a sensation. There was still no public gallery in Britain, and a certain level of initiative and status was needed to penetrate the private collections in country houses. So sale viewings, which were almost always free, with free catalogues, were a welcome novelty. Newspapers began to talk of Orleans mania. By 1810, an auction sale was part of London life. Rudolf Ackerman's graphic survey, The Microcosm of London, Ackerman lived in Camberwell, by the way, includes a scene at Christie's illustrated by A.C. Pugin and Thomas Rowlandson, which shows a sale room thronged with people of all sorts and classes, most of them taking no notice of the sale, having come principally to see, to be seen, or to get out of the cold. Private auction houses were now responsible for more than 90% of all real estate sales. If property were to be established as a commodity, however, it had to be removed from the world of sightseeing and bric-a-brac. And so a new institution dedicated to property sales was brought into being. The auction mart in Bartholomew Lane, which was also drawn by Pugin and Rowlandson, is inhabited only by men, all of whom are scrutinising bills of sale and maps, glancing up at the central clock or talking in urgent knots of two or three. This was a place for serious business, and it was the site of one of the earliest of several doomed attempts to establish a property market on the same basis as the stock exchange, a centralised, organised system of trading in which real estate could change hands with the same speed and simplicity as shares. The auction mart had some success. It took real estate out of the world of the coffee house and concentrated the market, for a while at least, in the capital. By the time Victoria became queen, London was the preeminent destination for real estate sales. Yet the troublesome questions about exactly what was for sale and who could or should own it persisted. The Mart's apotheosis came in September 1847 with the sale of William Shakespeare's home in Stratford-on-Avon. This was, on the one hand, a freehold plot with a cottage and attached public house, and on the other, as the Athenaeum put it, a dwelling which has been glorified by Shakespeare's familiar presence. For such a building to have found its way to the auction mart, where its significance and haunting memories were to be subject to the cant of the auctioneer, was the magazine considered intolerable. The auction mart battled on in its determination to concentrate the market and to establish it in the form of its own imposing premises as a visible, calculable space. Yet, as Fitzgibbon, who was the author of this book, points out, the mart was itself an artefact. As abstract in its way as Ruskin's conception of heritage, Ruskin had floated the idea that buildings belong partly to the unborn, which, of course, caused terrible tremors in the auction mart, this idea of metaphysical rights of the unborn. No piece of real estate was free of family ties, neighbours, history, landscape, memory. Even at the simplest level, the analogy with stocks and shares was flawed. One share in a railway company was identical to another, and the value of both would rise and fall in unison. The value of land, which might be good for farming, ripe for building, or neither, varied wildly. And when it came to urban and suburban real estate in the expanding Victorian cities, the comparison became ludicrous. 
In 1898, Expertus, a columnist on the Property Market Review, satirised attempts to describe a stock market in property. Why not carry this line of reporting a little further? Why not go just a little more into detail and tell us that there has been a keen demand for Camberwells, that the long-continued activity in Peckham's shows some signs of sacking? (laughs) So I I suppose I'm interested in, in, with with both of you and, and... Writers in London generally, that um, there is this imperative that remains in English society, British society, to prioritise acquiring a house and um, that still being an imperative that people think about all the time. And so when you have a house and when you live in a particular part of London, you become quite attached to that part of London. So I suppose I'm sort of interested in whether you actually can be a writer of London or whether you're a writer of Camberwell or a writer of Hackney. Well, I hope I wouldn't be quite so narrow as that. <laughs> I mean, I do. I have a workroom in Peckham, in, a, in almshouses built in 1837. And in the walk from my house, which was built in 1790, to my workroom, which was built in 1837, I go through about 200 years of different attempts of social housing, of which the almshouses are the first. Um, and then through the So Gardens estate, which was early 1950s, where some of you will remember Lackanel House, where the fire was, which I saw break out from my office window, um, which was a sort of Corbusian dream. But it was one, and that was one of the first estates that people started to look at and think, maybe these blocks, these slab blocks, are not going to be the answer to life. Um, And in between that, there's the workhouse, the old workhouse hospital. There's a low rise of the 70s. Um, And so these layers go on. But the obsession with ownership, um, which is why social housing has tried again and again and failed, which came out in um, this book, which I didn't know, that until the attempt to get um, a land register established to make everybody register every property and its owner officially was so hard fought, not by the Scots, but by the English, this obsession with property, that it was not finally compulsory in all counties until 1991. They've been starting to, to be trying to do it since the beginning of the 19th century. Obsession with property? Um, I don't think I've written anything that I've written if by a weirdest accident ever I hadn't actually acquired property in 1968 because, you know, up, up to that point, like everybody else, I'd, I'd either lived in communal houses where there was no space and we were always trying to float films and plays and whatever and there was no corner to write in, do little bits and pieces. And then um, they were tearing down. The plan was to get rid of the Victorian terraces in Hackney and, and continue the Holly Street estate, which was tar blocks, sort of right, right on down. So there were some condemned houses which were being sold for £3,000. And I, as weird chance had it, I, I had this money from having done a documentary film about Allen Ginsberg for West German TV. And we went, we were supposed to have a crew of eight people, but there were only two. So we went along to um, Park Lane to the hotel, and they gave us a carrier bag of money. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> and I straight away t- translated it, because we were being thrown out of our communal house. And I, you know, I, looked, I was only looked at one house ever. It was this. It was a, a little a family had been in. It was absolutely rammed. You know, there were grandparents living downstairs, parents living upstairs, tiny little spaces and 
lot of, and they they wanted to sell because they were frightened of the kind of emerging multiculturalism of Hackney. They wanted to get out to Epping Forest, so they were going to have it. I took the bag of money in, and I, I took it. And and this then by because I never owned anything, you know, over the next ten or fifteen years. But there was a house, so mm-hmm. so I had this house, and I was able to work. And I never planned or was never part of my intention to have a house. I had it. And I'm still in it. And now, of course, it's grotesque. But at that point, you you could have picked up a council and a lot of properties in Albion Square and those areas around Hackney, which are now sort of many millions. They couldn't persuade people to live in them. You know, they were saying, "Look, have this," and they said, "No, we want to be in a nice tower block one with a you know new kitchen and a proper showers and stuff. We don't want to be in these old ruiny houses with their history." Um, the senior Cray was living in the corner house, <laughs> but he was away at the time. Um, and now, uh, well, Will Young then moved, you know, so the, 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 the cultural social shift here is astonishing. <laughs> yeah. And now, we're, of course, you know, being very ancient, I'm one of the oldest inhabitants. Um, I'm conscious of the need to get to questions, so um, I thought we could just finish this part of the evening with a paragraph Oh, from yeah. uh, from your piece about the last London. Yeah. Okay. Um, Very short. Yeah. Just to uh, give a sense of what that piece was about, but okay. the fact that it's not completely pessimistic. Want <laughs> to find it? Oh yeah. Right. Okay. This, yeah. From the, from last London. I think about another thing John Evelyn wrote. I went again to the ruins, for it was now no longer a city. Is London still a city? I think it is. I think the traces of all the previous cities are here. At the Guildhall Gallery, in the heart of the city, I took the opportunity to inspect the Roman amphitheatre haunting the basement. Despite the soothing commentaries and the virtual ghosts, naked men posing and wrestling, the atmosphere had a distinct chill. You're reminded that ours is a city shared with those who preceded us. The living can assist the imagination of the dead, Yeats wrote in a vision. And that's about it. If we are to learn to listen and to wait, we might still serve some purpose. We might add a few words to the record. Over to you. Does anyone have any questions? Uh, I've written a question. Uh, sorry, can you just wait for the microphone? Thanks. A bit of a long question, but my equivalent to your big tent moment as the death knell of the 20th century new Labour aspirations was the moment recently when Boris had come back from the States to address Parliament and a woman Labour MP said, Hi, Boris, this is me. This is me to you. I'm a real person. Hello. Boris, please moderate your language, meaning try lying not quite so much. The latest tolly of 6,000. We've not only left the 20th century as incompetence, but had heralded the 21st with this total silliness. Are we really quite fond of this blatant mindlessness in the same way we love rude seaside postcards, or has it gone beyond a joke as characterised by Extinction Rebellion? (laughs) Um, All I would say is that um, Boris Johnson has just bought a house in Campbell. (laughs) (laughs) I am not happy, and neither is anyone else. Boris Johnson and (laughs) Carrie Simmons. (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, yeah. possibly, I mean, heaven knows who's paid for it, but apparently they're putting in a lot of security, and they'll need it. It's generally a bad move to cross the river. 
Either way, either way. And Angela Carter, who was on the south side of the river, wrote, wrote very well about this. And that was, that was my other great debt to the LRB, is that um, Angela wrote, wrote a wonderful piece on a, on a book I did called Down River and expressed her extreme discomfort in crossing and, and finding herself in Whitechapel and not knowing how to read the signs or the language and feeling strange and out, an outsider. And um, equally, the other way, I, I remember um, a person, Tony Lambriano, who lived as a Cypriot to become involved in nefarious activities, having, when he got released from prison, was being forced to move away from his old acquaintances. One of the things you, you had to do was to live around the Elephant and Castle. And, and he, he, said, he said, I met him, he said, I can't do it. It's, there's there. They're foreigners over there. <laughs> and, and he died within two years. So, you know. Well, it was in those days. I mean, the Crays were north of the river yes, and the Richardsons yes, yes. gang. Well, apart from that, it's just culturally, uh, you, you become uh, embedded in this sort of. Partic- I'm not sure we've answered the no, question. No, no, well, 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 I, I do think it's worth bringing. Um, Extinction Rebellion seems to me an, an interesting reference point for our conversation. I mean, certainly the first Extinction Rebellion protests around Easter, when I walked along Waterloo Bridge, and it had been closed and pedestrianised and filled with trees and um, stayed that way for six days or something, it did seem to me um, a kind of reframing of a cityscape that yeah. I hadn't experienced before and that made me well, it, feel... It, you know, and Rosemary could tell you these these things have happened many times. <laughs> well, I mean, but not quite like that. Not in the same way. I but mean, uh, I went when Parliament was prorogued. I went to see what was going on in Whitehall and Parliament Square, and I ended up with Extinction Rebellion closing Westminster, helping to close Westminster Bridge. Um, and I was really there. I was on their side generally, but I was there mostly to observe. And I just thought. Yep, these are these are very um, serious, quite imaginative people, and we've got a new set of problems and a new way of trying to. Th- and they were they were trying to think about what are we going to do, and um, the sort of irrelevance of the building. I'm so interested in the Palace of Westminster behind. I understood completely why they. I mean, somebody said to somebody, "Why don't you? How are you going to vote?" And they looked just totally blank mm. about the idea of voting. Didn't seem to have any. Didn't register. Because a lot of a lot of similar moments in the past, to, as far as I can see, them, have been site specific. Mm. They've been to do with like protesting motorways in <coughs> Leytonstone, where people occupied an area, became a community for a long a long time in a particular place because they wanted to fight for it, or, or they they believe in in a whole or, section or a of countryside or whatever is is happening. Place becomes a kind of focus because another. This is different. This is this is sort of global which, essentially. Which, yes. I mean, certainly in this country, Stonehenge has most often been the, the focus. Mm. And I'm quite interested to see what happens. There's a huge row going on at Stonehenge at the moment. There always is. But um, I think we may be boiling up to another. It's global, but I, I suppose the interesting thing about it is it's almost like a kind of tour in that it bounces from Billingsgate to Smithfield to the Bank of England. Yeah. To, yeah. Which does seem to me quite an imaginative way to... Well, it's the pop-up revolution, yeah. isn't it? Um, and they, that again, that's possible because of new technology, as a lot of exactly. The you know, but I mean, equally quickly cover flash mob. Flash mob when you know when the the riots were occurring and, and the uh, just 2010 before before the Olympics, that was made possible by the technology mm-hmm. because the the media, the ordinary media technology, was not happening as fast as mm-hmm. the street technology. So you mm-hmm. saw 
reporters who'd been sent out to Tottenham hardly knew where they were, and they were kind of struggling <laughs> around, and they're getting out their auto cues, and, and little kids on bikes were whizzing around them. Yeah. And, and then yeah. the, the, the rebellion spread down the overground line till, till it ended up in Croydon, mm. all, in, all in jig time. That's a totally different kind of rebellion, obviously, but it was a, an aggressive state of, of repression and danger and anger that had gone on for so long that makes these things boil over. And this, this is, is another such manifestation. Any other questions? Hi, uh, yeah. Um, um, thank you both uh, for a really wonderful talk. It was, uh, it was really interesting indeed. Um, um, I'm interested... Um, in your sense of how much you feel, uh, you both write about London and it's kind of, it's layers of history and it's kind of moving through and Ian, you talked about being a radio, uh, broadcasting signals from the past. Um, to what extent do you feel that London is a kind of inexhaustible resource for the artist, for the writer, for the historian? Um, because to me it seems like uh, you ended with the, the words on Yates, one can only add a few words to the record. Um, is that all we can do or, uh, or is there perhaps, perhaps more that can be achieved? I think a few words is quite good. Yeah. Um, no, I say, of course, it's inexhaustible and, until it isn't anymore. Well, I think it's you know a sort of pretentious claim to think that you can add anything to to these great voices. But when you when you become obsessed with with some of the tales and the tellers, and feel that that they're still active and that maybe there's something drawn from them that can be pushed on a little bit further and add to the record. Uh, for myself, I feel uh, I've you know, kind of reached the end of what's feasible because the, the, the new technologies are so fast and so different that I think a new kind of artist, or whatever you want to call them, is, is required and are emerging that will use these media in a way that's totally different to the way I've written. And even that sense of the past that we, we've, we've both talked about, I think, becomes different because everything is a sort of instantly available now you can you can sort of google you can i think you can get it will always be interested and i think they still are and in fact there's somebody here who led a tour around camberwell houses on sunday um including my house i think that people who are interested in where they are in time i think that's as instinctive to humans as where wanting to know where you are in space lots of people aren't particularly interested in either of those things but I don't feel I'm not as pessimistic as you are. I know oh, that. Good. I'm much more optimistic. I Let's hope you're right. I think there's also, I mean, just to try and speak on behalf of the LRB, um, <laughs> really? the LRB adds over 50,000 words to the record every two weeks. Um, right. But something that I think is really important is, is also recovering things that were written mm. a certain amount of time ago that certainly in Ian's case he'd completely forgotten that he'd written. Yeah. Um, which is an amazing way of showing that things have been added to the record but might have been forgotten about. It seems to me that one of the things that um, digital culture is good at doing in comparison with the, the kind of overstimulation that you describe is offering the ability to constantly find... Um, There's almost so much. It's sort of overwhelming. But, it, but it's searchable. Yeah. It's yeah, searchable. Yeah. And certainly the kind of history to... I do... Um, I can find a lot more, a lot faster, and that also has its disadvantages. Um, mm. And because you know, sometimes you don't go and spend all that time in the place which you used to have to do when you were going yes, through an well, archive. That's the thing I like. Going to the, I do too, but then I know some. I know more places <laughs> to go 
because I've searched um, and I found people I didn't know about and I can follow them. And But yes, I mean, absolutely. There's always writing about the antiques trade during the French Revolution. If you walk up and down through Soho, you can still mm. see in the backs of some of those places where the big storerooms were, where the winches were, where things went in and out. So you do have to go and you do have to see the stuff. But I think... I think the pluses of the new technology are as great as the minuses, myself. Last question. Anybody have a last question? Um. I was just wondering what you um, kind of thought about the kind of inexorable spread of London and how that influences um, the kind of situations around it. And uh, the reason I ask that is for, I'm from Gravesend, which I know Ian has written a piece about for the LRB as well. And um, that when I was growing up, it was always a very kind of Kentish town. It was kind mm. of very proud of that. And now it seems very much like a suburb of London, which people both kind of like and resent at the same time. And I wonder if you feel that that kind of spread, which obviously has been going on for centuries, whether that kind of dilutes the story of London or adds to it or is somehow both of those things at the same time. Well, I think, that's, I think corp- corporate kind of powerful London is, is incredibly predatory. And, and universal capital is hungry for the estuaries, swallowing it up. And Gravesend did have, as you say, had wonderful qualities. I mean, it was in every way, good and bad. And it, was, it was the great place for waiting on the tide, you know, the classic sort of Conradian thing of being between worlds and hovering and, and waiting to get into London and waiting to get out into the world. And, it had, and the na- very name, Gravesend, and then Pocahontas, who, sh- who couldn't want, didn't want to leave London dying and having been taken ashore there and commemorated in a statue. So, so you know, the, I, I feel sad if those places are just swallowed up to become part of the, the sort of ec- economic expansion of London and the, the, the new deep water docks for the containers, which are doing enormous damage on the estuary. Uh, Boris's ultimate horror scheme was the airport that would have sort of destroyed the last remnant of the wild London that's out there and I mean it is I still I was saying before that I still get along with this sort of Ford Maddox Ford notion from about 1906 of sticking a compass point in Threadneedle Street and making a 50 mile sweep and all that is London and it is a kind of great park of London which has become uh, onto the coast you know because of the People going to Margate, and you get an art gallery. It becomes part of London, Hastings, all the rest of it. All that is there, and it's a process that's inevitable. Um, but I think I, I think we've already passed a, a point of sort of civilization. It's become dangerous and unequal. Well, I say I am more optimistic than you. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I think um, one thing I would say, which may be surprising, is that I think Boris Johnson's only really good idea was the airport in oh, the God. estuary. <laughs> no. I'll we just, were doing so I'll well. Just, yeah. I know, I'll just say that. <laughs> it was never going to happen. But it was the only... Um, anyway, it was, an, it was a reinvention of an idea of a... It was the Eagle but, Comic, 1950. Well... <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> you're probably too, like, too young to remember that. <laughs> this debate might have to. But have anyway, I will move after. swiftly on from that because I haven't got time to. Oh, yes. But uh, what I, I mean, I don't think that the spread of London is inevitable or inexorable. Um, over time, cities expand and contract, and other factors come into play. The thing that I dread, which maybe Ian thinks 
will happen, or I don't know, is the, the sort of the donut effect like mm. you've had in certain American cities. I don't mind how far it stretches out because actually Gravesend is still very different and Thanet is very different from other places. Um, but that sense of a dead centre, yeah. that's mm. what I hate and worry about. Um, and I hope that um, you know, if economic catastrophe is about to befall us, one good thing will be that those of which the Shard, which Ian's written about so well, um, absolutely symbolises the tower belt in the centre, yeah. um, will will be like a ballard um, high rise. I mean, maybe not so gruesome, but we'll sort of um, we'll so we'll all get back in to the middle as well as going out to the outside. Do we have time for one more, one more question? Yep. Last question. It's a sort of similar question. Was just is London becoming a becoming a drain on the rest of the country? But I think you kind of answered it really mm. uh, in the way that you know the massive increase in population and massive increase in, in, in investment and transport you know where the rest of the country seems to be sort of suffering perhaps not because of that but you know yes, so it's a very I mean, similar kind of question to yeah no, I mean it, it is a real problem but that's partly because we are so centralized and one of the things that's going on now is of course Scotland wants to break away um, and you can understand it um, and the power of the city of London is really um, at the heart. We're not, I mean, not the, the power of most Londons, but the power of the city, financially. But is the increasing concentration of London the drain, could, could that be good for writing? Or is it definitely going to be bad? Writers write. <laughs> that's, that's how you can tell they're writers. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, whatever happens, they'll write. All right, we'll finish there. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.